Please turn to, uh, in your Bibles, to Acts chapter 4, Acts 4, verses 8 through 12. That will be our scripture reading today. And uh, following the reading of scripture, we will sing together the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. As we're working our way through this catechism, and particularly the answer to how we may be delivered from our sin and misery... It's taking us through the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed itself is divided into three parts. That section about God the Father, the middle section about God the Son, and the last section about God the Holy Spirit. And uh, we, we've been looking at these questions. Uh, Lord's Day <clears throat> 9 and 10 is the sections on God the Father, which we've looked at. Then from Lord's Day 11 through Lord's Day 19 are the different sets of questions that are about Christ, his person, and his work. And uh, the um, Lord's Day 11 is on his name. The Lord's Day 12 is on his title, Christ. Lord's Day 13 is on his uh, term, the, the further title, Son and Lord. And then the fourth, 14th Lord's Day is uh, his virgin birth. And then it goes on, the questions following that, his work. So his person <clears throat> really dealt with in these questions, 11, Lord's Days 11, 12, 13, and 14. Now I'm departing from the Dutch tradition on catechetical preaching through a catechism like this where they would take one sermon on one Lord's Day. And uh, I'm doing two together today, 11 and 12. And you might wonder, why are you departing from that uh, well-revered tradition? It's because even though I know there are those who preach a number of sermons on each of these Lord's Days, uh, Herman Hoeksema, he preaches three sermons on every Lord's Day set of questions. And on Lord's Day number 12, he has nine sermons on that one Lord's Day. I'm I'm sure he's not going to preach them on the same Lord's Day, but that's the set of questions. I'm not creative enough to do that. And so I I feel like it would be better for us to bring together a little bit of Jesus' person and his work. And so today what we're going to look at or consider are these two sections, one on the name Jesus, uh, 
And secondly, the title Christ. And what do those mean for us? What do we gain from that? Very important things we gain from those and uh, how we can apply them to our lives. So the first section, which is questions uh, 29 and 30, is on the name of Jesus. And in the first century, the name Jesus was a fairly common name. Uh, we have several babies on the, uh, the way, and uh, parents typically do their, uh, they, unless they have names already figured out, maybe they'll consult a baby name book and what are common names or popular names. But in, in that day, uh, Jesus was a fairly common name. Scholars uh, think that it was the fourth most common name among babies being born, male babies being born at that time. The most common was Simon or Simeon. The next was Joseph. Then was Judah. And Jesus was the next name. And it makes sense that it would be common because Jesus is the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament Joshua. And uh, we have boys named Joshua, around, some in this room. <clears throat> There's a Joshua, maybe more in this. It's a common name. It's used even to this day. So in the Jewish culture, Joshua would have been a very popular name, a great hero of the faith in the Old Testament. And the New Testament equivalent, Jesus, would have been like that, a very common name. Now, the Joshua we know of, that wasn't the name he began with. His original name was Hosea, which means salvation. But Moses changed his name to Joshua, which means Yahweh saves or Jehovah is salvation. So while it was a common name, when it was given to the person Jesus of Nazareth, of course, it became exalted in its significance. And that's what we want to think about today. When Mary, his mother, was spoken to by the angel, she was the first one to know you're going to give birth to a son and you're going to give him the name Jesus. And then Joseph was the second one to learn what his name was going to be. And the angel said to Joseph, your wife, your, your the betrothed is going to give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that draws our attention to the significance of the name, the exalted significance of the name of this one, uh, Jesus Christ. It's focused on, as question 29 directs our thoughts to, the fact that he is our savior. Uh, There are several things that are brought out here and brought out in scripture as we think about that. Jesus is our complete savior. And he's our complete savior from sin. You'll name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Jesus did not come primarily to heal. No, he did that. That's not why he came. Jesus did not come come primarily to do miracles. Of course, he did miracles that were signs of his glory and of his authority. But Jesus came by his name to save his people from their sin, to deliver them from that. 
He saves us from the guilt of our sin. We, because of our sins, were accountable to God and were under his just and holy wrath. Jesus came to save us from the guilt of our sin. He came to save us from the punishment for our sin. The punishment due to our sin. In the Old Testament, it uses the imagery in the book of Psalms of a cup of wrath. And the nations are going to have to drink it down to the very bottom. Jesus came, as we know from his prayer to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, to drink a cup. The cup of woe on your behalf. So you wouldn't have to drink it. He came to save us from the, the penalty and the punishment of our sin. He came to save us from the power of sin. Now, you and I will always struggle with sin as long as we're living in this body. But Jesus came so that the, the dominion of sin in your life could be overthrown. And by grace, you could live a godly life. He came to save you ultimately from the presence of sin. That one day... You will be with him and you won't ever have sin to worry with anymore. What a glorious day that is. What a glorious day that will be. The thing that causes us so much trouble in this life is our sin. It just messes everything up. And we battle it. And Jesus came to deliver us from that. He's our complete savior because not only does he take things away from us, but he brings such blessings to us. Uh, He brings righteousness to us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He takes away that sin and fills us with his righteousness. He takes away the guilt and the punishment and the fear and the dread, and he brings us peace. Paul says, Romans 8, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He is our complete Savior. He's our perfect Savior. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. And you may want to stay in Hebrews because there will be some other verses we'll look at. In this letter, Hebrews chapter 7, verse uh, 23. It's in the chapter where the writer is particularly spelling out what it means to be a priest of the order of Melchizedek. But in verse 23, he says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, 
But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. He's our complete savior. He's our perfect savior. He's our only savior. It's what Peter said to the Sanhedrin. There is no other salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's the glory of Jesus Christ as our Savior that is epitomized in his name. And because he's our complete Savior, our perfect Savior, and our only Savior, it's why the next question, and we won't go into it at length, but the question number 30 talks about we ought not to look for salvation in anyone else. We ought not to look to add anything to Jesus and his work for our salvation. And unfortunately, people have done that since Christ was here. Uh, One of the very first really serious conflicts in the church was that the Jewish Christians believed the Gentile Christians needed to become Jews. They needed to be uh, circumcised before they could become fully Christian. In Acts 15, we have the debate over this particular issue. They were saying, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. They're adding something to the work of Christ. And the apostles, under God's great blessing, said, no. We're saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, nothing else. But people through the centuries have always tried to add something more to Jesus' saving work. Might be an experience, might be knowledge of some sort or another, it might be um, a certain obedience to certain commands or practices, whatever it is. And it's, we're not saying that once you become a Christian, you don't seek to live a godly life. We're going to see that here in a moment. But we don't add anything to Christ. Christ alone is our Savior, and we have to trust in him. And that's the point, the glory of that. Uh, Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. It affirms this particular point. Hebrews 5, 9, and I'll begin at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. <clears throat> there is salvation in no other. Christ alone. Jesus alone. We need to rest in that truth and be caught up in, in that wonderful truth. Jesus is his name. Christ is one of his titles. Even though we're familiar, we usually say Jesus Christ. That's, we put those names together. The Bible does. The New Testament does. At times, it's Christ Jesus, which interestingly enough, only Paul uses that phrase. But he uses that fairly frequently too. Christ Jesus, the title first and then the name. But we have these we have the name Jesus and the title Christ. 
And Christ is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Messiah. And it specifically means the anointed one. Christ is the anointed one. And that's what the question asks. Why is he uh, called Christ the anointed? The first part of the answer, because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost. Uh, the, in the Old Testament and the other, under the Old Covenant, there were various roles or positions or tasks that God had called men to. Prophet was one of them. Priest was another one. King was another one. And they had positions of great authority and importance in the nation of Israel. And we're not familiar with this, with the role of the prophet, but for every, for priests and for kings, for them to take position of the office, they had to be appointed by God and they had to be anointed for the task. And so anointing was done usually by oil applied to the man and the purpose. And the oil was a picture of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in First in Samuel, we're told about when David was anointed. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So David was appointed by God to be king. He was anointed by Samuel to be king. And the Holy Spirit came upon him to equip him and empower him and enable him to do the work of king. So being anointed uh, involves uh, an appointment or a calling to the position and an anointing, equipping for that. And we see this in the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. After he had grown and it was time for him to begin his ministry, he goes to John the Baptist to be baptized. And John's baptism was a baptism for sinners. Jesus was in one sense identifying with sinners. <clears throat> but remember, John was scandalized by it. And he said, no, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says to him, permit it to be so, to fulfill all righteousness. And after John had baptized Jesus, what, a, what happened? The Holy Spirit came down from heaven in the form of a dove and came upon Christ. And then the voice of the Father from heaven declared, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was Jesus being anointed. I mean, he was God, but he was being empowered as the Messiah for the work that the Father had given him to do. And the Father affirmed his calling and the Spirit came upon him and Jesus entered into the work that he was called to do. Still in Hebrews, look at chapter 5 again, uh, beginning at verse 4. It says, No one takes this honor upon himself he must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, 
you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It was God the Father set apart Jesus the Son with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to do the work. Uh, Just interestingly, uh, in Jesus' first sermon, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61, and in that chapter it's talking about the servant of the Lord, and the servant of the Lord says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And Jesus, in his first sermon, he quotes from that passage, reads from that passage, and then he adds the statement, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus himself owns up to his calling and his being anointed that the Spirit of God is upon him for the work that he has to do. And as in the anointed one, there are three particular roles that Jesus has. It's spelled out in the catechism answer. The three roles, the first one is prophet. He was anointed to be the prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, there is going to come another prophet like me from among your brothers. Listen to him. And so that promise and that a prophet of, of who was to come is, was pointing to Christ that he is not just a prophet, he's the prophet. And from him comes the word of God. From him comes the message of God. He speaks from God with the power. The other prophets are simply shadows of this prophet who was to come. And he would then take by the Spirit and uh, inspire the apostles to write the written word of God. So we have the authoritative word of God that comes from this one who is anointed to be the prophet. And the challenge of the Father is to us as well. Listen to him. Pay attention to him. A second role that he was given, a second office that he's given is the office of high priest. He's our high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father. God had given a priesthood in the old covenant as a shadow of this high priest that was to come. So he's not a high priest according to the order of Aaron. He's the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, a higher priesthood. And they offered sacrifices that could never take away sin. Jesus Christ, when he offered himself, he paid the price. Though He gave the once for all sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. He sacrificed himself in his priestly work. But because he ever lives, he ever lives to make intercession for us. So Christ, even at this moment, is interceding with the Father on your behalf. We try to remember to pray for one another. And we we do a, a good job of it. And we have the bulletin with prayer requests and so forth in it. But there are days we may forget. We may get busy. There's one person who never forgets to pray for you. And that's your great high priest. 
He's always there at the Father's right hand, interceding for you. And uh, go back to Hebrews 7, verse 27. This reference to his continuing, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed their their sins once for all when he offered himself. He's our wonderful and glorious high priest. And the third office that Jesus has as the Christ is the office of king. Uh, The catechism answer explains who governs us by his word and spirit. He defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. So Christ rules over us. He's the king of his kingdom, which by grace we're a part of. Uh, We know he's king and Lord over all the earth, but he's specifically king and Lord over his people. And we need that rule as king. Now, just as a way to kind of review this and summarize it, the Children's Catechism has a wonderful set of questions and answers that simplify this for me. You may need it too, but it simplifies it for me. How is Christ a prophet? Because he teaches us the will of God. How is Christ a priest? Because he died for our sins and pleads with God for us. How is Christ the king? Because he rules over and defends us. Why do you need Christ as a prophet? Because I'm ignorant. Because I'm ignorant. Why do you need Christ as a priest? Because I am guilty. Why do you need Christ as a king? Because I am weak and helpless. And so the questions that come to us, Christ, our anointed one, is he your prophet? Do you listen to him? Do you learn at his feet? Is he your priest? Has he made the offering on your behalf and does he intercede for you? Is he your king? Does he rule over and defend you? How do we apply all that to us? Well, believe, trusting in Jesus, our Savior, trusting in Christ, <clears throat> our anointed one. But question 32 adds to that application. What does it mean for us that Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king? And the answer is that because you also, as a Christian, why are you called a Christian? Because you also have an anointing. When you become a Christian, when you come to know the Lord, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. He changes your heart, takes away the heart of flesh and gives you, or excuse me, takes away a a heart of stone and gives you a, a heart of flesh. And he dwells in you and empowers you. empowers You You have an anointing as well. And that anointing enables you to also to follow in your calling. As you are conformed to the image of Christ, as you are conformed to the image of Christ, you too can serve as a prophet, priest, and king. Now, of course, not in the same category as Christ, but as we mirror image Jesus and are conformed to his image, you are also a prophet. 
I don't mean you get up and preach or teach or whatever or something like that. But what I mean is you read God's word. God's word becomes a part of your life. You speak God's word to one another and to others. You uh, are, are committed to that word and it's part of your life. Uh, you're a priest because you offer yourself as a living sacrifice to, to God, uh, holy and acceptable in his sight, which is your reasonable service. You intercede for one another. That your role is a, a priestly role. You have a kingly task. <clears throat> in what sense? Our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We're in a spiritual warfare. We have indwelling sin that we have to, to, to do battle with and we have to, to conquer by God's grace with his help. You and I are instruments of uh, God's kingdom ruling over uh, sin and wickedness and putting it out of our lives. And so you and I, as those who are anointed by the Holy Spirit, have a role in our lives living in conformity to the image of Christ. To be committed to his word. To give of ourselves. And to do battle with sin. And so the, the questions that come to us as we think about it and apply it to our own lives is, first of all, have we embraced Jesus as our complete, our perfect, and our only Savior? Have we embraced Christ, the anointed one, as our prophet, <clears throat> our priest, and our king? And then by his grace, are we trying to live out in our lives that blessing that God gives us to confess Christ, to be a living sacrifice, and to do battle against sin. May those things be true of us. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our glorious Savior and what a wonder it is. It's a marvel at the work that he did on our behalf. <clears throat> we thank you that we have the privilege to know him by your grace and we have the privilege to serve him by your grace as well. Help us to do that, Lord to truly bring honor and glory to you. And uh, we ask, O oh Father, that you would be honored in us. In Jesus' name, amen.